Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And there's a black pew Bible, I believe, in either the rack in front of you or perhaps down the row. We are at page 991 in the New Testament. And tonight, we continue to consider God's intentions for males and females, especially in his public gathering of his people. That's a study uh, we began uh, at least last week with verse 8 in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul had said he wanted the men to pray. That is, not to be passive about it, and likewise to pray, but not to be angry or argumentative in it. And then he turned to women there and he said, I want them to adorn themselves, but not sensationally or seductively, uh, and not just by clothing, though that should be modest, but also in conduct. Modesty and good works are how women are to adorn themselves in God's church, uh, in the public assemblies. This is what Paul has been saying. He's been talking about men and women and distinguishing his pastoral words and commands to them. Well, tonight we continue that theme here, as I mentioned last week, in a, in a, in a controversial text in our day. So we want to think about these things. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And let me just say a few more words by way of introduction. By asking this question, is every position in God's kingdom, every ministry, every role, open to everyone? It's a question you have to ask and answer. Certainly membership in God's kingdom is open to anyone who will repent and believe the good news. Jesus opens wide his arms and says, come to me. But what about places of service in his kingdom? Are we all designed to just fill every place in the kingdom? Some today would say that uh, even to ask such a question is to be arrogant or elitist or bigoted or perhaps chauvinist. Uh, how could the church deny any position to anyone if they want it and are willing to do it? Well, uh, our answer to that, Paul's going to have an answer to that in a specific way, but my initial answer would be simply say, would, would we all remember uh, that, that certain ministries in his church have already only been open to some, but not all people? Not a one of us can be an apostle. None of us has met the qualification for seeing with our own eyes the resurrected Lord Jesus. None of us has given the Holy Spirit with the promise that by that same Spirit, we can write books of the Bible. But there are people in God's kingdom who were given those roles and gifts and responsibilities. None of us has been chosen by the Lord to be around when he was upon the earth to be one of his 12 disciples. Or to be one of the three more intimate disciples among the 12, let alone part of the 72. But none of us need resent the Lord God, our King and Savior, that we do not have every role available to us in his kingdom, that he limits our place and our time and our responsibility. We need never resent that, and not a one of us in his kingdom is impoverished in any way from 
any spiritual blessing that is ours in Jesus. We are all, Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has withheld nothing good from you that every Christian gets because we are co-heirs with Christ. United to Jesus and what belongs to him becomes ours forever. That is true of every man and woman and boy and girl in his kingdom. And we all have a place of meaningful service in his church in accordance with our gifts. And we all don't have the same gifts. And in accordance with our opportunities, our circumstances, our time of life in the world and his kingdom and in his providence and his calling. So uh, already I just want to say on the front end, what Paul's going to say here is not totally surprising that there might be some limitations to certain kinds of service, which is what he's going to talk about, for some people. So we want to ask the question, and even more pointedly than just what is the role of men and women, but here at verses 11 through 15, what does Paul say is the role of women in the church? What does he say it is? What does he say it isn't? Why does he say it? Let me invite you to think about these things from God's holy and inspired word. Hear now the word of God. First Timothy 2, I'll pick up the reading at verse 8 and catch the whole of the paragraph. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's pray and ask him to help us. We pray that you would be our teacher tonight. Help us, we pray. To understand your word, give us the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Help us to think the way that you do. Grant that the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, if you read the newspapers, watch the news, or just keep your ear to the ground, you know that there's a lot of pressure on Christians today to be ashamed of what the Bible says about sexuality, about being male and female, and how we uh, express our maleness and femaleness, whether that's with regard to the marriage bed and sexual relations or in other ways. People today, many people, want to say that men and women are identical and interchangeable, even in every way, though... Women don't sing bass, typically, and men, to date, as best I know, never give birth to babies. Uh, The 
Bible, recognizing this as the way that God made it, not necessarily low voices and high voices, but this distinction, the gender distinction, the Bible uh, appreciates that. The Bible highlights that. Men are different than women, and women are different than men, and these roles are not negotiable nor interchangeable. Right alongside that, we want to say at the outset that the Bible says that men and women are, as regards worth and value and significance, uh, made in the image of God, equal before God in the eyes of God, both made in the image of God, both made to represent him on the earth, both have dominion over the creatures, both are likewise fallen, both may likewise be redeemed. So that we can say that in the Bible there is both equality and difference between men and women. Now the fact that individual people have equal worth and different roles is clear in scripture and it shouldn't disturb us. We have a wonderful illustration of it, uh, this fact in the Trinity. Consider the Trinity just for a second. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are of We might say equal worth. They are each divine. None is more divine than the other. One is not more holy than the other. They're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And yet, the Bible makes clear that their equal worth does not translate into identical roles. There's a definite pattern of relating between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in which different persons of the Godhead perform different functions in God's universe that he has made. And, and we don't devalue one over the other because of it. God, God the Son died upon the cross, but we don't think that the Holy Spirit is belittled because it wasn't the Spirit who died upon the cross, but has a different ministry. To us, And uh, one more opening comment, and that is to say, I, I, I certainly realize that this whole matter of men and women, how they relate in church, can be a difficult subject to talk about. Uh, but as difficult as it might be, it's not going away in our culture, of course. You've been keeping your eyes open. There's, and then there's, so there's nothing to be gained by not talking about it in the church. In fact, precisely because our culture is... We might say running away, uh, headlong and fast away from the Bible's teaching on this issue, that all the more reason we ought to consider it. I realize that that leaves us with questions. What is the Bible really teaching? How, How does that shape what we do and the way that we live and how we should interact with our culture about these things? I realize this may stir up more questions and I may stir more up than give you answers tonight. And I invite your questions. We should discuss these things, not... Uh, look away and pretend that the Bible doesn't speak of them. So that's what I want to say by way of introduction. Now, what is it that Paul is saying here in this passage? Well, let me, let me highlight the passage in, in three parts. He, at verse 11, says what women are to do. At verse 12, what they are not to do. And verses 13 to 15, reasons why it is this, with, with some encouragement, I think, at the end. So uh, what are women to do, verse 11? What are they not to do, verse 12? And why, verses 13 to 15? So let's start then at verse 11. Let a woman, Paul says, learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
Now, immediately it might be easy to sort of skip the first part of that phrase and either look at the second part or even jump to verse 12 and say, what? What is he talking about? But don't miss the first part of what Paul is saying. Women are to learn, to be educated in the Bible and in sound doctrine. Eric Alexander, a hero preacher of mine, said he had a young student telephone him one evening from an English city where he was at university. Uh, I have just traveled two and a half hours by bus to the opposite side of the city, he said. I've been here for eight weeks, have been around every church that I've been told about, which is remotely evangelical. I have heard some marvelous music. I've had... uh, I've been under some remarkably scintillating talks about current issues. I've listened to dialogue. I have seen drama and dancing. I've been witness to all kinds of excellent occasions of worship. But I am sitting back in this university residence this evening asking, will nobody in this city feed my soul? That student wanted to know God and God's word and feast on it. And that ought to be the desire of every woman, Paul says. She ought to feast on the word of God in public worship. She ought to listen and learn, he says. Now, look, I realize falling upon our contemporary ears, that may not sound all that remarkable. It may sound condescending for Paul to say it or for me to be talking about it even this way. But if you remember the circumstances in which Paul is writing, there's nothing condescending but everything liberating about what Paul is saying. This was revolutionary in a culture where education was sadly considered to have been wasted on the female. To speak in such a way assumes women will be learn- assuming that women will be learning and ought to be learning was a huge leap forward. Indeed, some of Christianity's harshest critics today who will say things like, well, the Bible oppresses women, frankly, don't have the foggiest idea what they are talking about. They ignore ignore the the revolutionary implications of passages like this. In the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, women were relegated to the outer court of the temple, not permitted to come any closer Additionally, they could be divorced and essentially abandoned for really no reason at all. The the rabbis debated whether they could just do it because the the, the food got burned at dinner. Uh, They had no means, really, of protection in the justice system of Jesus' day. Indeed, their testimony in a court of law was not allowed because they were women. Now look, the Bible didn't teach those things, but the Jews of Jesus' day did. You know that the prayer of the rabbi was to wake up in the morning and say, Thank you, God, that I am not a barbarian, a slave, or a woman. We know that the rabbinical opinion expressed in the Jerusalem Talmud said, it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned, that's the words of God's Old Testament law, to be burned than to be entrusted to a woman. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? In Christianity from the earliest days, women are to learn. The rabbis of Jesus' day didn't teach the girls, only the boys, the Torah. 
And Paul says, you men and women, you boys and girls, you gather together. And, and I want you women to, to, to learn because you are a full disciple of the Lord Jesus. Now, how are they to learn? He goes on to say that they should learn quietly and with all submissiveness. So they are there to be in the worship service. This isn't the synagogue of men who go home to tell their wives what's what so they can really learn it. <laughs> but they're to be growing in godliness as they receive themselves the word preached. But it would be, Paul is saying, inappropriate for the women to be talking during the teaching or interrupting while it's being taught. They should be uh, eager to listen, not eager to speak, and to be respectful of those who are doing the teaching. She is to remember that she is under authority, as are we all. Christ is her king and her Lord, and Christ has appointed in his church pastors and teachers and elders uh, and Uh, All should respect and honor those who teach on the Lord's behalf. Now, what do we make of this word submission, all submission or full submission, as some of your translations have it? Well, the first thing I want to say about the word submission here or submissiveness is that that is not a dirty word. And it is not a belittling word. And we are all as Christians called to be submissive. It's a word that's used of all Christians in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. Uh, We are all to be submissive to God our Father. It's a word in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, to speak of the submission of all Christians to civil government. It is a word used in Ephesians 5 of the way that wives should submit themselves to their own husbands. To be submissive is to accept God's plan for the ordering of community and to act appropriately to the place that he assigned us in his community by accepting the authority that he has placed uh, over us and to whom he has entrusted us under their authority. This text does not mean that men have authority or permission to abuse their authority. They have authority to serve as in marriage where the woman is given as head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church, that headship is to be lived out. How? The way that Jesus exercised his headship. How did he do that? He gave himself for her, for her well-being. So in the home, so also in the church in that sense. This text does not mean men can abdicate their responsibility. But I want to say because men fail at this, because elders and pastors fail at this, that doesn't mean the answer is to say, move over, buster, get out of the way, you have had your turn, and now it's my turn. Loving the men in our life means encouraging them to be what God has called them to be and praying to that end. And loving God means submitting to him and listening to him and being content with his call on our lives. Whatever that is. So Paul here says women are to learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Now, uh, notice the second thing he says at verse 12. Women, he says, let me put it this way, are not to preach or rule 
in the church. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, what is Paul saying? Uh, Well, first of all, if you take that prohibition rather superficially and out of context, it might seem to be comprehensive as if the apostle was forbidding women in every single circumstance from teaching or exercising authority. And that is not the case. And we know that's not the case. We know that all people of God are responsible for teaching one another. Colossians 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And we know that women served with the apostles in the spread of the gospel. Just look at Romans chapter 6 and all the women he commends for their labor. They're working hard for the sake of the gospel. And we remember Acts chapter 18 that... When Apollos came to town, and he was an eloquent man, but he was insufficiently instructed in the fullness of the gospel, there was a couple who took him apart, a husband and wife team. She is listed first in a place of honor, Priscilla and Aquila, and they brought him to their home, and they instructed him more fully in the way of the truth. And she is honored in that. So I would say that the Bible certainly does not forbid women in all circumstances from speaking and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a gag order. But Paul says in corporate gatherings, the women should not teach the men. She is, he says, he uses the language, she is to remain quiet or silent. Now again, I want to say, first of all, don't press that farther than Paul intends. As we said when we looked at 1 Corinthians 14, in in a similar kind of text, Paul is not requiring a woman here to sort of zip her lips when she enters the door of a church building. I mean, that's just a, that's just a character of what Paul has said. It's pejorative, and it's just that people have attacked Paul for saying, oh, well, women just have to keep silent, you know, can't say anything. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about enjoying fellowship and communicating with one another at church. He's not forbidding women to sing praises to God in the congregation. He's not forbidding women to pray, to say amen, to agree with prayer, and to pray publicly in the corporate gathering of God's people. He's, for not, he's not forbidding, as we once said, uh, for a mother to speak words of comfort or admonishment to her children uh, during a service. She's, he, he is not forbidding a woman here to teach children and teaching children is not to be despised Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them when his disciples thought he's too busy for children he loves the little children he wants them raised and nurtured in the Lord and he is not forbidding older women to teach what is good and to train younger women as is explicitly taught in Titus chapter 2 that they are commanded to do so He is not here forbidding women from being missionaries. He's not forbidding women from serving on a church staff. If you had a large church staff that could afford women serving in that way, he is not forbidding women from doing hundreds of vital things that are of real importance in the kingdom of God. And he is not speaking here about the place of women in society or government or the university or even the home in this passage. He's talking about in the ministry of the assembled church of God, men and women gathered together. In those public gatherings, they should be led by qualified males called pastors and elders in the work of teaching and exercising authority. Now, I do want to say that was basically uncontroversial for about the first 1900 years of the church since Jesus. 
And it is still uncontroversial across most of the world today, but it's a great controversy in certain parts of the world, of course, and even where we live. Paul not only mentions that they should not teach, but he mentions not exercise authority over men. What does this mean? Well, that expression, not exercise authority here, or have authority, uh, is only used here in the Bible. It's the only place. Figuring out then its exact meaning is, uh, is a challenge, and ordinarily what's done in a, in a situation like that is to ask the question, how is this word used in the other literature being written in contemporary time? And thankfully, we have folks who have done those studies. Dr. George Knight is one. He's a New Testament scholar, seminary professor, past president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's looked at every single use of the word known to us in other literature. And the common use of the word indicates, he says, I quote, to have authority over. And that's all it really means, to have authority. Now, the reason that's important is this. Some people who want to see women become pastors and elders will say that Paul is saying women should not usurp authority or take authority when it's not been given to them or, or, or abuse authority or exercise domineering authority. In other words, they would say in many churches today that, that ordain women to be pastors and elders uh, many of them would say that Paul here is simply saying it's not okay for her to, to, to be domineering in her exercise or to take that authority upon herself, but that she can exercise that authority. And we would simply say that the word here simply means to exercise authority. It has nothing here to do with abusive authority, though, of course, abusive authority is not a thing to be exercised. The issue is not the way in which the women rule, or teach, the issue here is not doing either over men in the public assembly of God's people. Now, it might be helpful to pause here and consider that Paul, in saying this, is <laughs> he isn't saying that the work of teaching and governing isn't for any woman but it is for any man. As though all men have this kind of responsibility to teach and have authority over all women in God's church. And that is not what Paul is saying. As chapter 3 will make clear, the responsibility for the, the job, the qualification for the responsibility uh, of male eldership isn't open to just anyone and everyone in God's church. Most men aren't qualified and gifted and called to be teachers or to exercise this kind of authority in God's church. James chapter 3 even warns all of us that not many of us should become teachers. For we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I will be judged more strictly than you, unless God calls you to be a teacher too. Most men in the church, along with women, will be receiving the word, not teaching it publicly. Many men don't have the qualified, aren't qualified to teach, don't want to teach. Not this way. I mean, we should all learn, men and women and boys, we should all learn to speak the language of the faith and, and be able to instruct one another in sound doctrine. But, but 
Likewise, qualified elders are to govern the church, not just anyone. You'll see that when we get to chapter 3 and other places. Okay, so if this is what Paul says women should do, they should learn their full disciples, and yet they should not do these things. Now, why would Paul say this? What's his reasoning here? And this is where we, we finish in verses 13 through 15. Two reasons, and I think a closing encouragement. The, the first thing I'll say is it's, Paul isn't saying this because he made this up and that this is his idea. Just as in our reading of Luke earlier in the service, Jesus, in answering a, a theological problem where a whole religious body was wrong, he went to God's word, even the Old Testament, even Moses. So likewise, Paul appeals all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 here in his answer. He appeals back to creation, to the way that God made men and women in the first place. Look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. One of the reasons Paul says it should be this way in the church is because, because of the order in which men and women were created when God made them. God, Paul sees God's plan for the distinction between men and women rooted in God's providential, purposeful creation of Adam first, and then Eve to help Adam, as Genesis 2 says, because it was not good that he should be alone, and he needed a helper suitable for him. But Adam was first, and Eve was second. That's Paul's reasoning here. Now, why do I, say, why do I highlight that? Well, some will say Paul, um, Paul is just simply... Um, using, uh, in his cultural day, the Roman Greco uh, culture, the Greco-Roman culture, the Jewish culture of his day, uh, they needed to hear this kind of thing because things were out of whack. But our culture is different, and so our practice can be different, people will say. But notice that Paul's reasoning isn't cultural. He says nothing here to them about what was going on in Ephesus or what was going on in in uh, that day and age, his argument is transcultural. His argument goes all the way back to creation itself here. He's not making an argument that's cultural, it's creational. And even before the fall into sin, he's saying we're made this way, not that we've fallen, and because we've fallen, it must be this way. That's not his argument either. Or not simply his argument. It's not because of culture or sin, it's because of creation. Because it's not of sin here, we can't simply say that, well, in redemption, which brings forgiveness for sins, and which brings transformation from sins, and which brings restoration in so many ways to the way that God made us and intended us to be made, we can't simply say, now, it, 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 it ought to be this way, and it ought to be restored to this. No, Paul is saying in, uh, that... that this is based on something that God did, that God decided, that God set up, that has transcultural significance for all cultures in every age. And so his first reason here isn't because of sin or culture, it's because of creation. Now go on to see what he says. He does say that the fall here uh, bears on this issue. Verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Adam, he says, was not deceived, but Eve was. Now look, Paul doesn't mention the fall here into sin, 
so that he could say that Eve was deceived and that therefore what we really know is that all women are more gullible than all men. And so because they're more gullible, they should never teach. And men, who we all know aren't gullible, you know, should teach. That, that is not his argument here. And if it was the case that women are just simply more gullible than men, you wouldn't find Paul saying he wants older women to teach younger women. Why would he do that? The the argument is not about gullibility here. I think the issue here is about role reversal. Remember the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Eve, who was bone of Adam's bone, one flesh with her husband, was made to help Adam because Adam needed help. Do you remember that when the deceiver came to her, she chose to act independently of her husband and on a matter of extreme importance. When offered the forbidden fruit by the enemy without checking this out with her husband, but acting independently of him, she ate. And she turned to Adam who was with her and gave some to him and he ate and he knew he shouldn't eat, but she had been deceived. Adam abdicated his responsibility to obey the Lord in a command he knew he ought to obey. And he disobeyed the Lord by not teaching and protecting Eve in her apparent very misunderstanding of what God had said or confusion over it by the deception of the deceiver. And Eve usurped his authority there and acted independently of him. And it wasn't supposed to be that way. So because, Paul says, not only of the order of creation, but also because of the fall, we're to see that women are not to teach and exercise authority over the men in the church. Now, Paul closes with a word of encouragement at verse 15 where we will wind up, especially, I think, to women and a word of encouragement about redemption. Because if this talk of the late unpleasantness, unpleasantness, we might say, of the garden and the fall... Uh, If this talk or of this kind of talk of what we might call the woman's sinful tendency to try to control men or control the circumstances of their lives uh, or even the failure of the men going all the way back to verse 8 to pray and to take responsibility for the well-being of others in, in, in all the various ways that we all fail texts like this and have failed and may yet fail. We are not to despair. Notice Paul says in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, everybody admits this is a very difficult passage. If the other ones weren't, this is difficult to even be certain of what Paul is saying. There are four major views of what Paul is teaching here. One view, or the first two, I think we pretty readily rule out, but, but here they are. She will, the first view is, Paul is saying she'll be protected through childbirth so that she'll have physical protection in the process of bearing children. There are lots of reasons to reject reject that view and say that is not what Paul is saying here. First of all, the word saved here is used in Timothy in a spiritual sense, not in physical sense. Not that she's rescued from danger, but that her soul is saved is how the word is used elsewhere. And secondly, many godly women have perished giving birth. It's a historical, demonstrable fact. Giving birth is a dangerous, inherently dangerous thing. Some do not survive, and this promise has not failed them because this is not that kind of promise. That's not what this text means. Secondly, the second view is that she will be spiritually saved 
through having children or through motherhood. Some will say that. But that's absurd by the teaching of the rest of the Bible, right? That would mean that salvation for men, children, singles, and women who can't have children is by the grace of Jesus, of course, through faith in him. But, you know, if you can actually have a child, you can be saved by having the child. That's absurd. Her salvation is not in her work, but in Jesus' work on her behalf. So we rule out both of those. This third has its appeal, uh, though I hold the fourth. Uh, But the third says this, that she will, in some sense, find fulfillment in her calling to motherhood. She'll find fulfillment, not in teaching, but in bearing children. Fulfillment used there in the sense of that this is the, the way of or the path of her walking out her sanctification, her being saved in in the way in which God has designed her to live if the Lord does give her children. I mean, one objection would be, again, what about single women? What about those who remain childless? The Lord doesn't give them children. I mean, that would be one objection to, to see it that way. Another would be, is Paul really talking about uh, living a satisfying and fulfilling Christian life here? Uh, and and but there are reasons to hold that view. For, but let me just get to the fourth one as we close. The fourth view would be this. What Paul is saying is that having spoken of creation and fall, he now speaks of redemption. Uh, He speaks now of the birth of the child. And actually the article is there in the the Greek. It's it's, uh, the childbirth or the a birth of the child is how people would, would read this that way. In other words, he's, he's, remember, he's, he's got you thinking about the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, their deception and fall into sin, and we know what came immediately after that was God promised in Genesis 15, God promised to his rebellious people that he would send a redeemer, a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That there would be salvation promised and that salvation would come through a child, a male child, born of woman. And in which case what Paul is saying, I don't want to leave you in the depths of despair here. I want to remind you of the wonderful, gracious, saving work God did and he did it through women. As John Stott says, so then even if certain roles are not open to women and even if they are tempted to resent their position... They and we must never forget what we owe to a woman. If Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, there would have been no salvation for anybody. No greater honor has ever been given to woman than in the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And so Paul says, just, just remember that though the serpent deceived you, Eve, It is through your children the serpent himself will be crushed. Now then what do we make of the language where he says, and he shifts from she to they. Uh, He shifts at the end of verse 15, not just to speak of she being saved, but they will uh, uh, be saved if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What Paul is doing here in speaking of women who will be saved is assuming the presence of faith the pre-existence of faith in the women he's speaking of here. In other words, he has in view here women who have already responded in faith to this promised Redeemer and received his grace. 
That's why he says if they continue in faith, they've already come into faith. And he's simply linking their salvation to continuing in faith, just as the way the Bible does when it says that genuine faith is a faith that does persevere. Those who believe continue believing. So it is then faith in the Redeemer, not faith in us. Faith in his work, not in our works. And that true faith perseveres, and it is accompanied by those who have it with growing godliness, which is expressed even in love, even in modesty, self-control, even in submissiveness. May it be so for all of us in Christ church as we seek to serve him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, that you are a gracious God and Father, that you love your children, uh, that you designed us, you know us, you made us for yourself. Thank you that Jesus is both King and Lord and Master and a Savior and lover and Redeemer of his people. I pray that uh, you would grow us in his grace and knowledge and shape us by that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.